0: Ke ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Wai Tuhi Tāmaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. A giant of New Zealand music, Shane Carter writes for the people, places and social forces that have shaped him in his autobiography, Dead People I Have Known. From the death of a band member to the halted progress of straight Jacket Fits, the band that was expected to conquer the world with numbers such as She Speeds, and his dazzling comeback with the band Dimmer, Carter's story is a hike through our cultural landscape, notably taking in that Dunedin sound. He is in conversation with John Campbell. We hope you enjoy this session.
1: Because I'm, 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 we're the same age, Shane and I are the same age, both born in 1964, but I ha- now have a job that requires me getting up at 3.45 in the morning, and so, uh, and so I'm just going to work in a quite linear fashion, really starting at the beginning of the book and working through it, if that's all right. And, uh, and I want to talk about um, Suzanne. Oh, yeah, yeah. S- s- seeing Suzanne, well, does everyone remember Suzanne from the, most of us? Most people who've been in New Zealand for a- enough years will remember her. Yeah,
2: are Suzanne Donaldson of the Chicks? Yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, well, she was the first big star I saw, yeah. And she came and played at the Alexandra Motor Camp when I was five. And uh, I'd seen her on Happen Everyone must remember Happen In. And uh, yes, yeah, so she was, and I was a really big fan of Scylla Black, as I talk about in the book. In fact, I do a bit of a musical critique actually. I compare Scylla and Suzanne. Singing Step Inside Love? That was Scylla's big song. And, uh, but as I note in the book, um, Suzanne's voice didn't strangle on the high notes like Silla sometimes did. So yeah, I actually rated Suzanne higher than Scylla Black, which was high praise indeed. So to see her singing at the Alexandra Motor Camp was, um, was incredible, it blew my five-year-old brain.
1: <laughs> and was there a sense then, I mean, I know your mum was a musician, but was there a sense then that this was something wonderful? Do you think that triggered some secret aspiration or too soon?
2: Well, so, yeah, no, I just realised just right there when you were saying that because my mum had blonde hair and she actually looked really similar to Suzanne, and I just made that connection right then. And she was my mum was a singer as well, so um, yeah. When I saw Suzanne, and yeah, I just uh, she was very enigmatic, and yes, at first it was when I was first struck by the special powers uh, that performers seem to wield, and. Um, Almost, you can't imagine any life for them outside of the per- persona they are on stage. You know, it's like, well, that's their, you know, permanent existence, and they don't have to do all the mundane stuff. So it's like she was in this magical bubble, and uh, yeah, and just seems so carefree and. Uh yeah, so uh, it seemed a very special place that she occupied. And, and also I wonder the sense of
1: dress-ups. You know how um, Erica and Peter became Ricky and Jimmy, right? Yes. The sense, the, the transformative powers of it. They went out of their tough lives, and they were tough lives. Erica and Peter's life were tough. Yeah. In, in, into something where they escaped. Of course. Yeah, where they were under lights. Yeah. Where people were looking at them, and we're going to talk about it later. In some cases, wanting them. Where you, where there was a sense of unworldliness and, and otherness, which was transcendent in a way, wasn't it?
2: Yes, uh, yeah, I think it's very empowering, you know, for people like that, uh, as a performer, and you know, music is such a great escape, and it's a magical place to be able to occupy as both a performer and as, you know, as people who enjoy music as well, you know, and it is a transcendent experience. And um, it is a place of escape, and it's also a place for venting, and it's also a place to uh, put a lot of uh, energy that could be used negatively otherwise. And, uh, yeah, so both my parents were, um, they were both musicians, and uh, they loved music, you know, so I um, inherited that love of it, you know. But, you know, for all the things that it did for them personally, um, uh, it was just a love of music and uh, simple as that, and the mysterious thing that music is, you know, and uh, they felt that really powerfully, um, But it's always very encouraging for me to, to follow that path. Yeah.
1: I, I want to come back and talk about music, and I want to talk about you as a musician, and your understanding of what you have as a musician, which you write about without false modesty, which, I, which we don't want in this book. I, I, I don't think you've told lies in this book. And sometimes I read memoirs and I think they're sugarcoating it or they're being sentimental or they're reinventing, but I have a sense this is profoundly true, is it?
2: Yeah, it is, and you know, almost embarrassingly, so. in fact, people keep saying to me, oh, you're very brave, and it's kind of, you know, and uh, it's kind of this hint of pity almost to it. uh, (laughs) I've walked down George Street with my pants around the ankles and it's like, oh, you're very brave. so, uh, yeah, there, there is that element of it, but yeah, look, I actually, I wanted to write the opposite of a memoir about an all-black captain, for instance, you know, yeah. I, I didn't want that kind of um, sugarcoating or um, nothing against all-black captains but kind of that blandness yes. and uh, <laughs> that kind of friendly blandness, even that likeable blandness, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I actually really reveled in getting into the nitty-gritty, and even some of the things that I said about myself, you know, I, I, gave, you know, I, I pulled some, quite a few things out of the closet, but I almost took a perverse delight in that, and um, I can kind of liken it to my guitar playing, where it's just, it's like, well, I'm just going to shove it right in their face, and uh, yeah, and it's good, it's liberating not to be afraid of that. And, um, you know, when you write about, um, you know, your foibles and other people's and all that kind of stuff, we've all got them and we've all got our catalogue of um, embarrassment and uh, we've all got our moments that, you know, decades later we look back and go, oh my God, you know, they're still horrifying and your insides are shriveling away as you recall them. But um, that's just the deal of being human and there is nothing wrong with having weaknesses. Uh, You know, anyone who says they haven't got them, well, they're a liar. And I I, I didn't want to, I didn't feel the need to construct this facade of, you know, I'm always right, they were wrong and, you know, all that kind of stuff because that's just not life and um, uh, so, yeah. It was really easy to be um, honest when I was alone in a room in Aramawana, you know, 15 kilometres from the nearest human virtually, so I was like, yeah, I'm going to write all this shit. And uh, the sort of slight horror when it came in book form, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? I've walked down George Street with my pants around my ankles and everyone's saying I'm brave. And uh, But um, yeah, look, I really did, and uh, yeah, I, w- I wanted to get to the nitty gritty and... I also wanted to write about lives that I don't think get acknowledged that much, actually. What Maybe... Li- m- what m- lives? Well, where I came from, you know, I grew up in Brockville. In oh, Jamaica. sorry,
1: lives. Lives, yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In uh, Boys in the Black stuff, uh, there, there's a staggering scene. Boys and the Black stuff is not Alfreda St. Pitt. Sometimes people confuse them. That was the uh, Alan Bleasdale series. Did you see that? You, you would have seen it. Yeah, that. of course, yeah. Yeah. And th- th- there was a character... Uh, Chrissy, who's married to a, wa- a woman played by Judy Walters, and she said, and there's this beautiful scene where he, I think he's killing his pigeons cause, or releasing them because he can't afford to look after them anymore. And she says, This is not the life I imagined. This is not the life they describe in Women's Day. This is not a, how I thought it would be like when we got. Mm. And that's just fucking Brockville, isn't it? That was just, yeah. it was just unrelenting. That, that sense of, you know, the boy who broke his neck while swimming when you were on a family holiday, and you see him, what, 20 or 30 years later a tetraplegic, and just all, all the bad luck, all the episodes of toughness, the violence, the anger, the lack of money, mm. and we don't, because most of those of us who read, particularly books published by Victoria University Press, don't come from Brockville, right?
2: I don't think so, no. no. Yeah, um, look, you know, look, without being, you know, the noble voice of the working class and all that kind of stuff, I did actually want to represent those lives that I grew up with. And I don't, I know maybe I'm not very well read or I haven't seen enough New Zealand liter- or read enough liter- New Zealand literature or films, but I don't actually see many depictions of that life, of those kind of lives. And when I do, they're kind of like caricatures or something. And um, yeah, I really wanted to... Um, Write about the lives that I grew up with, that are, that don't actually get talked about that much, and that you don't read about in the, in the Woman's Day or you know Metro or whatever, you know. And there's some really epic battles going on out there, you know, that are never acknowledged. And you know, um, I wanted to I wanted to acknowledge those. And uh, I also thought, um, yeah, I haven't my experience of growing up in the 70s and 80s and that kind of um, Uh, Environment, I just haven't really read about that. And so I thought, well, uh, that was uh, a a major uh, part of my story that I really wanted to write about. And for me, that was actually interesting stuff to write about. You know, the music stuff I've talked about heaps, and it's it's not actually that interesting to me, you know, or a lot of the musical history, just because I've talked about it so much. Whereas going back and examining all that stuff and looking looking at it, that was really interesting to me, yeah. It's funny we lie about we, we lie about those lives, don't we?
1: Or, 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 or we want to somehow contrive a resolution in which everything ends up being okay. So people battle, but something happens. Or there's the poor but noble myth of the Waltons. Or there's the. The, the comfort and reassurance of the Rovers' return in Coronation Street, where no matter how shit your life is, you can go and have a pint and everything's going to be okay. Whereas in fact, actually for a lot of people in Brotville, things weren't okay, were they? They were just unremittingly, unrelentingly tough.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I also think um, a lot of the people, that, the, you know, the people that I do write about, um, you know, with the title of the book and that kind of stuff, uh, no, there were no happy endings, you know. But that is fiction, you know, tidy resolutions and the dramatic arc and the... Uh, know the reward at the end and the moral. You know sometimes there's no moral, and uh, it's just the randomness of life. You know, and it's the same with the people who get unf- who have unfair lives and have um, unfair endings. You know, um, I th- you know I, wrote, I just, I know I said in the book something about how there were no scales of justice decreeing what was and wasn't fair, and there isn't. You know, and um, yes, uh, some really unfair shit goes on and happens to people. Um, the thing, if you if if you haven't read it,
1: and and, and I, I want to use this as a I want to use this as a double edged question. But if you haven't read it, what's extraordinary is how spare you can be. How matter of fact almost. This is page nineteen. Dad was adopted too. He was born in 1943 in a house for unwed mums in Auckland, and his mother left him there and returned to her home near Taupo. Thirty words, not and you couldn't have done it with 29 words, 30 was the minimum number of words you could have used. Yeah. 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 But, the, but you didn't use one more, Yeah. and yet there it is, and it's so big. And, and so I wonder, did you overwrite to start with? Did you write like a writer? Did you write like you were auditioning for the creative writing course at Vic, and then did you pair it back? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I thought I'm going to write like this, and then I'm going to send it to the Victoria University Press, <laughs> yeah. and I are going to really like it because it's lyrical. And, uh, Did you? Did you? No. Nah. Um, look, yes. Look, I've never written long-form prose, and you know, I was a journalist. I was a journalist when I left a boy reporter when I left school. So I've always enjoyed writing, and um, but you know, I, you know, uh, I, you know th- th- I wouldn't have spent more than eight hours every year writing. You know what I mean? And uh, writing, you know, I'd write the occasional article or something like that. So I was, I was completely out of practice. And um, um, but just as a sort of slight tangent, I think my lyric writing really helped me because I have been writing lyrics since I was fifteen, and that makes you really aware of um, yeah, just lots of um, aspects of wordcraft. You know, like um, uh, the right rhythm, the right vowels, the right you know consonances and assonances rubbing together, and all that kind of stuff. It also gave me a really good idea of flow you know, and rhythm. And a lot of people, when they've read the book, they've, most people who've read the book read it real quickly. Yeah, you know, I read they, it quickly. Yeah, and then, says, and then I read it two yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's because it's easy to read, because it's got a rhythm to it. And when you're talking about not one word more or one word less, um, that was really conscious because I actually wrote it all to a rhythm. So, um, and sometimes, some sentences, I would actually choose a different word, one syllable less, just to fit the rhythm, and um, yeah, there's one part where I thought, oh okay, this is going to be real Victoria University press, <laughs> what I'm going to do is that I'm going to put it all in this one rhythm and that's going to be real clever because it's about music-like, and. Uh, so yeah, I was in the shower, so I was thinking, like, oh, this is genius, and I was going to write it all. And um, so I did that for a day, and then I went back, and it was so boring after two sentences, because it was all the same rhythm, right? So that idea didn't work. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so, yeah, so when I initially started writing it, because I was out of practice writing, I had no idea how to write, actually, and, um, or how to write sort of a book. And, I tried way too hard and um, I was uh, uh, these big, long, clumsy sentences and so then I left it for quite a few months. I worked on it for five months and then I left it for five months because I had all this music stuff I had to go and do and I found it really hard to go back to it because I sort of had this um, inkling that it wasn't very good and when I went back and uh, read it, my (laughs) fears were confirmed and… Did
1: anyone else read it? Steve I, board, Steve I didn't show to reading.
2: anyone for a year and a half. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah, I was cooped up in the spatch out of Anamoana that I managed to get through a mutual friend, which was awesome to write. But it was uh, to write him. But it was very isolated, and I didn't really. See, yeah, I didn't show anyone anything for a year and a, nobody for a year and a half. So um, yeah, so I came back and I thought the worst thing about it was that I thought I can't actually hear me in here, and it was also boring because you know when you read bad long sentences, your eyes just start glazing over, and that happened real quick too and um, yeah, I just sort of had this realisation that I had to write pretty much how I talked and uh, once I got that, that was literally finding my own voice and I also realised that with my music as well, I, for a long time I was really interested in minimalism, like for a, about five or six years I thought, right, I'm going to write all my songs in one chord. You only fucking knew three
1: chords, didn't you? In board games, didn't you? Yeah. yeah,
2: well, at first that was necessary, and then later on it was an artistic choice, yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, but I, I really do like um, boiling things right down, and uh, one of my favourite books actually um, is uh, this pulp fiction one called um, A- The Killer Inside Me by Jim Thompson. Do you know that book? No. Okay, so he was just a crime writer, but he just writes in this really hard-boiled, pared-down kind of way and I love that style and I also love that with minimalism and music because to me it's um, it's getting rid of all the, the fluffery and all the embroidery and it's getting to some quintessential truth at the core, you know? and. Um, uh, you know, you can extrapolate on that as much as you like and make it as lyrical as you like, but there's always that kernel of truth in the middle, and that's why I, re- I really love boiling stuff down to that essence. And I, I feel that way about music, and I thought, oh, well, okay, well that really works with writing as well. So, yeah, the style is really spare, and most of the lines are pretty much you know, the length of a lyric, actually. Yeah, they are. Yeah, but they have, like I say, they've got that rhythm and... Um, yeah, the whole thing sort of bounces along to me,
1: yeah. I'm going to find a section that speaks to this on page 79, forgive me, I don't, um, I, I've made so many marks in this book. His book is completely disfigured, it's yeah, just uh... it, it, Well, actually, uh, it's not, actually, that. how so I've just gone through a very clean section, but um, board games may have initially written our, our own songs because we couldn't play anyone else's, but our failure was a form of success your songs were about who you were and what you felt. It wasn't right singing all night about how someone else felt. Yeah, right. And I can't remember what chords you had. I think,
2: what'd you have? Uh, A... Oh, we just had the bar chord at that point, which is basically E, yeah. Yeah. It's a great chord. The the Ramones made 10 albums on it. Chuck Berry based his whole career on it, so yeah.
1: And that's the point, isn't it? That, that because, I mean, you did Mongoloid by Devo. Yeah. That was the, that, that, that was your cover song, wasn't it, when you first started?
2: Uh, and we also did I Wanna Be Your Dog by Stooges, yeah, which yeah. has right. yeah. Yeah, three chords as well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they're all using the A chord, uh, the B, E chords, yeah. But, but rather than learn chords and do other people's
1: songs with more chords in, board games started from scratch. And I want this a beautiful piece of writing, well, I think it's fantastic, that I'm going to ask you to read for us, if you don't mind. Uh, which speaks to this, so it's just the bottom from there, where I've, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to just leave you cherish books, and that's really bad, and then the top two paragraphs on. So this is board games deciding to play an original. So this is the kind of birth of Shane as, a, as, a, as an original composer,
2: really. Oh right, we mentioned Gavin here who was the original um, board games guitarist, he's this heavy metal kid and he was even worse than us which was saying something because we couldn't actually play, he was sort of going into the negative, and um, (laughs) yeah, so um, I suggested having a go at one of our originals, frustration was only two notes but back in the Elsie's garage it had been swamped by our ineptitude and Gavin's freeform expression. We'd only got as far as the first chorus where Jeff brought on a beat, a bit like New Rose by The Damned, but now there's the glue to link us and power us all the way. When we crashed over the line two and a half minutes later, there was a short, disbelieving silence and I could feel my knee trembling behind its sarcastic disco patch. There's a patch that said disco. My mum sewed that on. A song I'd written had just been played to the finish and what's more, it hadn't sounded weak or disillusional. It had, in fact, kicked. I backed down from the mic, here was a new world of sound, The sky was borderless and its horizon killed off a previously flat earth. I'd been given a f- virtual superpower and a flame to shoot from my fingers. Is that how it felt? Oh, oh. <laughs> thanks.
1: <laughs>
2: Is that how it felt? Oh, totally, yes. You know, the, the, the bit where I say um, about having flame to shoot from my fingers, that was almost the kind of, um, the psychic feeling of it, yeah. Very empowering. You Quite son- amazing, as well. Yeah, it was yeah. probably one of the most amazing moments of my life. Yeah, it's like, wow, this is that. Yeah.
1: And this was in Wayne's garage, right? Wayne's family's garage.
2: It was. Yeah. 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 <laughs> With all the tons of paint. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, there's a lovely humour in this, uh, an absolutely gorgeous humour. I don't know whether we can describe it, but there was a, there was, there was, there was a moment in, in, in the development of the, of the kind of nascent, w- latent sexuality of the entire neighbourhood, where you we, we were doing what we, we well, I guess everyone does at some age, roughly intermediate age. We, yeah, we called it Rudy's. Yeah, Rudy's. <laughs> but there was a boy called uh, Paul Swinton, I think, from memory. His name has been changed, but we'll call him Paul Swinton. We'll call him yes. Paul
2: Swinton who I think was somewhat precocious on that front. Well, he discovered this amazing ability that boys find once they um, pass the threshold of puberty, yes. Yeah. And so he wanted to... uh, To Show uh, us. Yeah, he wanted to show you. (laughs) What he had discovered, what (laughs) manifested itself after a certain period of self-involvement. Yeah, we stood around him at the, yeah, um, he said, look, <laughs> <laughs> that's how we go from the conversation, look. Uh, <laughs> we said, yeah, and so he said that he had, he had discovered that he had this new ability, <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, why don't you come and have a look, and we said, okay. So we went and, we went and stood around him um, at the bushes at Brothwell School. As he got involved in some self-involvement, <laughs> and uh, after five minutes we thought it was beginning getting really monotonous, <laughs> and we hadn't actually seen the you know these amazing new results, and um, so yeah we actually left him to it, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so and went back to the shops. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. So, so the genius... He may still be there. He may still, he'll, he'll have RSI by now the lad, won't he? <laughs> anyway, the genius of this is that Shane describes it, and, and Fergus said before, this is, your, this is comedic timing. It's absolutely brilliant. So it does end exactly as Shane described it. Eventually we got bored and left Swinton into it and wandered back to the shops. The next paragraph begins, I was more interested in harness racing. <laughs>
2: I was way more excited, and always had a better conclusion, yeah. And probably quicker, just quietly.
1: Where where did that come from, that ability uh, to write like that? There's there's another example that I'd love to find of the the hippie at the... uh, I'm going to find it. Where did... Did you know you were being funny as you... Did you think... I mean, were you chuckling as you were writing that? Were you enjoying yourself tremendously?
2: Well, that story, that cracked me up, man, I'd forgotten all about that, I thought, that's a good story. (laughs) Um, Look, no, I didn't actually uh, write, I didn't actually, yeah, I had no idea what time I was going to have, I didn't, no, I didn't purposefully write it to be funny, but it's just the way it came out, and a lot of it was writing, it was incredibly funny, yeah, and... uh, yeah, I found uh, that writing the book, it was, there was, wasn't actually much middle ground. It was either yeah, hard really pressure. hard to write and, you know, I literally, I'd have to get up and walk around the household in my chest going, oh, fuck, that's you know. And, but other parts, yeah, I was just cracked up, you know. And so it was kind of tragedy and comedy with nothing much in between, uh, yeah. nothing sort of to balance. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. Well, um, Shakespeare, Shakespeare understood you needed one or the other, right? Yeah. Well, they're both closely related too, you know, and uh, yeah.
1: I I like the the surface shitting on the floor at a beneficiary gig gig hall once. Shane says, it was unclear if it was in protest or as an expression of support. (laughs) Bless him. Then, next paragraph begins, my social life was more measured than that. (laughs) It was at that point, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. Uh, there was a 13-year-old girl named Marilyn Kenton who lived uh, in the street below you, I think, didn't she? She lived in the house below. In the yeah. house below, sorry. Yeah. And she had school exercise books where she'd written out the lyrics of the kind of pop songs of the day. Yeah. And you would borrow them and pore over them. I would, yeah. And did you know what a good lyric was? Did you understand, you know, what, th- something Dick Frizzell once said to me that shit has its own integrity? Shit has its own integrity. Did you know what of the pop culture songs that were being played on the radio were good ones?
2: Um, well, I knew what I liked. Yeah, I liked Silla Black, Donnie Osmond, Suzanne. Um, and then I matured. And then I liked, um, you know, Girl, Gary Glitter. And. Uh, <laughs> It's a great sound, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, around that era, uh, Marilyn passed away last year, actually, um, bless, yeah, but um, oh, yeah, uh, she had all those songs, so it was pretty much, that was kind of mid-70s, a lot of the glitter artists, like the Sweet and Gary Glitter and T-Rex and all that kind of stuff, um, Susie Quattro. I know, you know, I wrote in the book that my main impression of the lyrics was the singer going on about how tough and cool they were, and how they wanted to get around with a particular girl, and how Susie Quattro just sang about how tough and cool she was. And uh, that was pretty much what I got from it. Yeah. 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 But you know, as far as uh, uh, music that I liked, yeah, you know, I was a big music fan right from the top. Uh, probably my first favourite song was "Twist and Shout" by the Beatles. And I've always been really fascinated, actually, why little kids love the Beatles, but they do. And um, I think it's the sound of their harmonies, actually, and it's quite exciting the yeah. sounding music too. Can you tell me about seeing the Sex Pistols on radio with pictures? Um, Yeah, so when did I see the Sex Pistols? I'd heard kind of about punk rock, but I'd heard sort of these exaggerated stories about it that, um, yeah, uh, sort of these hyped up stories about the outrageous things that these punk rockers got up to. But I hadn't really heard any of the music. And um, yeah, so. uh, yeah, when I saw the Sex Pistols, it was a really revolutionary, revolutionary event for me, yeah.
1: Punk rock gave me a setting and a purpose. It made being rejected, outside and alone the proper place to be. I dug in and sent up my flag because I'd finally found my tribe. Yeah,
2: that's exactly the way it was. Yeah, uh, you know, I was quite a uh, marginalised kid and, you know, kind of an outsider. And all of a sudden, yeah, as that says there, you know, it's kind of like, well, it's okay to be like that. And, uh, you know, um, with, with my upbringing, the uh, world had seemed kind of um, often a hostile place and uh, something to battle against. And then you saw these people actually carrying out this battle, and I totally agreed with it, you know. D- like, did you, did you yeah. have a sense of yourself as an outsider? There was, one, there was one thing when you talk about the children's request show
1: <laughs> and listening to it. And then you talk about them never reading out the letter you wrote them? Yeah,
2: I was really hurt. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Did you have a sense? Did you understand enough about the world at a young age to, to understand that the world wasn't really interested in kids from Brockville, either figuratively or literally? Did you know that?
2: No, because I had no wider context outside of Brockville, like any little kid, you know, that was yeah. my universe, you know. So no, I had no concept of that. And of course, you know, no, no matter what upbringing you have, to you it's normal because you have no way to contextualise it or anything. To com- you know, you're not old enough to compare it really. You, know, you might go to houses and they might have better biscuits, but it's, you know it's, that happened too. And um, yeah, but um, yeah, you have nothing to compare it to. So to you, no matter how outrageous some of the stuff that's going on is, to you it's it's normal. Yeah, you know? that's life. Um, nice. it's, it's just the way it is, you know. Um, and some of the stuff was really outrageous. Like your mum, Ward 10, right? Ward, did she go to Ward 10? Yeah. And did she have shock treatment? Yeah. Whoa. Yes, um, both my parents had psychiatric issues uh, for various reasons, for, you know, because of their own issues. Yeah. And
1: you said you visited, but not for long. Was it just too terrible?
2: Um, it was quite a heavy environment, yeah. yeah.
1: Can we talk about London SS coming to play at your school? Yeah, sure. How on earth they were
2: invited to play at your school? Right. But who was the lead singer of London SS? It was Chris Knox for the night, yeah. And what was that like? Yeah, that was uh, was very similar to seeing the Sex Pistols. It was um, a real watershed moment for me. And uh, our um, school discos were pretty square square affairs. And uh, I think disco was reigning supreme at that time. So, um, yes, the London SS, um, that was kind of um, uh, a mix of uh, sort of punk rock musicians from Dunedin. They were invited to play at the, the school dance, and Chris was the singer, and he was the most intimidating figure I'd probably ever seen, actually, and, um, uh, on a stage anyway. And uh, it was completely amazing, and it blew my 14-year-old mind. And um, I also wrote about that in the book where... Um, seeing that performance and the way that guy was on stage, I realised, yeah, as I said in the book, that you didn't have to be part of the big bland wave and uh, that you could carry on outside of that and um was with self-assertion mm. and, um, and also in the middle of it a strange form of humour.
1: Yes, that's right. And I think
2: that gets forgotten as well because yeah. it, it was, there, was, there was a sense of humour yeah, to it as Chris well. Yeah, Chris' life was very, very funny. Oh yeah, the whole punk rock thing yeah. that was like that, you yeah. know? so even though it was kind of angry and had its bitterness and um, aggressive, there was also actually a really good humour to it as well, and a smart humour, you know. It was, um, and, and, I think that gets forgotten, it became, you know when punk rock was appropriated by the boot boys and all that kind of stuff, it lost all its humour. and It just became sort of this mean nasty thing. Gosh, it was violent wasn't it boys, some of the violence you write about. Well it just became really blokish and violent, yeah which had nothing to do with the original scene. The original scene was very inclusive and it was kind of a rallying point for, for the outsiders and the freaks, you
1: know. When we were growing up, when I was growing up in Wellington, you were growing up in Dunedin, uh, there was such a pervasive, and I suspect everyone our age and older in this room will remember it, there was such a pervasive sense of life being elsewhere. Everything, all of our, all of our pop culture, with the exception of, of, of sport, I guess, rugby, was imported. So if you turned on the radio, it would be some, forgive me, but it would be the fucking Eagles and that, you know, just interminable, just shit awful, you know. Well,
2: I actually quite like the double lead break yeah, at the end of Hotel well, yeah, California. You're,
1: you're on your own there. <laughs> and, there Don't were, and, think then, so. and even when punk rock came, even because I had a friend, William, whose older brother Michael had never mind the Bollocks, and I had exactly the same experience as you did, because I was quite shy. and and. And suddenly you are able to imagine an invention of yourself that could take you into the world, that 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 could give you enough front to exist as a social being. Well, like I said we're weaklings get to swagger. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but it was still elsewhere, right? It was still, I mean, it was still English. And then suddenly there's Chris Knox at your school. And you're thinking,
2: shh actually, this can be me, this can be us. You know, it's the whole thing made flesh. Yeah, that's completely right, yeah. And after that moment, of course, you know, like where I grew up in Dunedin, you know, like everyone, people like, you know, kids like myself started forming bands. Yeah, And that whole thing just carried on from there to the point where, you know, what we were going out and seeing on the weekend in each other's practice rooms or at the empire with, uh, you know, 15 people there was more inspiring than what we're hearing from coming in, you know, coming in from overseas, yeah. And,
1: so, and, and I think that ex- when you did the practice, the frustration practice in Wayne's garage, and I think the same turned up, right? They were just kind of hanging around listening, right, weren't they?
2: Yes, yeah. no, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, What's that? The yeah, image? no, that was actually, yeah, when we auditioned um, our, our, the guy who became our guitarist in board games. He was actually Fraser Bats. That's right, sorry, His I'm getting to make Batts, it. Yeah, who's yeah. He was the singer in yeah. the same. Yeah. But yeah, so we met all those people, and they um, grew up in Opaho, which is on the other end of Dunedin, and we just didn't even know that these other kids existed. So to actually, you know, we had this sort of small core of about, you know, six or seven of us at sort of our school, and then all of a sudden to come across these other kids. Um, it was quite an amazing moment, yeah. Rock stars are born not made, they are in the way most
1: people aren't. And, and don't hit me with false modesty here because it's not. it doesn't serve you. You are a rock star, aren't you?
2: I guess so, yeah, in the way I define it, yeah.
1: Good, eh, yeah. Well, I, 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 you are. Oh, cheers, I mean, yeah. everyone who's seen your life, everyone who's seen your life knows that you are. And I, I think the first time I ever saw your life was at the Cricketer's Arms. It's so long ago now. Or maybe at a, at a place, no, I think the Cricketer's Arms first and then at a strange place at the bottom of Taranaki Street that had many, many, many different names. Do you remember upstairs?
2: Yeah, Not the t- big con- concrete building. Yeah, yeah, that's Yeah, on the corner, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. what
1: the name of it was at the time.
2: Right, yeah
1: but you were, I mean, actually, you weren't, in some respects, you weren't as dramatic uh, as Chris, but you were sometimes as shit-scary as Chris when you were alive.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You loved it, didn't you? Of course, yeah, brilliant. I loved being scared. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know, like, uh, well, I love writing that bit, too, because you're not supposed to write that, right? And... uh, but, um, it, yeah. I, I don't know, like with my performing and all that kind of stuff, I just, uh, uh, my main thing and where I get the power from my performance is um, just being 100% committed to it really. And to be 100% committed to it, you have gotta believe it. You have gotta write yourself a good lyric and you've, you know, because that's your speech and that you can believe in. And But that's, that is the secret to being a good performer, is being 100% about it, you know, and being committed to it, because people sense that. Yeah, they do. People also sense if you're bullshitting or if you're faking it, or, yeah, and... Um There's this
1: great section on page 84. You say, being a rock star is one of my few areas of expertise, a topic I swatted obsessively. Sorting through the chaff, discovering what it was to be moved by music. And then you say, being a rock star was never difficult like much of my life was. It was like opening my veins and watching the blood course through. It was an essence that was always in me. So I woke up one day and there it was. Yes, yeah. Shit, that must have been wonderful, was it?
2: When I woke up? Yeah, yeah, and there yeah. it was. <laughs> I woke up and thought, I wonder what Paul Swinton's up to. <laughs>
1: Can I really... I wonder, em-
2: I wonder if he's still there.
1: <laughs> Can I really embarrass you with the bottom of page 83? Is that, is it? Well,
2: yeah, well, John actually wanted me to read out this bit, but no way, man.
1: <laughs> so, so, ladies and gentlemen, it's late on a Saturday night, and
2: I'm assuming this is an
1: adult audience. There are no children in the room, are there, under the age of 16? There has never been a better way for showing off to the opposite sex than rocking particularly hard. It makes you seem mysterious, and women wonder what you like to talk to or to fuck. When you play, they'll often look at your trousers, which is base but true, like the purest rock and roll. Man alive. (laughs) That's good, that part of it. (laughs) I just read that with an aching envy. (laughs) As you should. Is it ridiculous sometimes? Is it absurd sometimes? Preposterous? What aspect do you mean? Yeah, well, just the, <laughs> the, the, the star-fan kind of relationship, the absurdity of it. The, do you ever think, don't you realize it's me? Or are you absolutely in the persona?
2: Um, I guess it is a persona to a certain extent in that you're only revealing a certain part of you and you've got all these other aspects, so you know. Like a lot of performers that I know are actually quite you know shy people yeah. and quite quiet people, and then they just turn into these monsters on stage. You know, it's the same. Uh, you know, I play I play soccer with people, yeah. and they can be these beautiful, placid people off the field, and then they just turn into these yeah completely out of control maniacs um, on on the field. You know, so it's only one aspect of your character. And um, does it, sorry, what was your question? Does it feel? I've no, yeah. no idea.
1: Yeah, uh, I've no idea. I just.
2: Just, no, it doesn't really feel weird, I just, um, you know, like I say, I really, I myself am really moved by music and other people's music and my, my, my objective when I write music is to write music that moves me and that I can then express it, you know, and um, I don't actually, when I played on audience, I don't actually, you know, I don't feel superior to an audience or anything, they're there for the same reason as me, you know, to enjoy that music. So it's not so much this weird thing where you think oh I'm a star and everyone's watching me, it's just more this exchange and um, it's actually really beautiful and uh, you also realise as a musician that you do actually have a gift and that that is something you can actually offer to people and with the energy they give back to you as you do that, that's the whole reward, really, and that's why, actually, you know, I love playing live. I hate—I don't, I don't like making records. It's just way too fiddly and anal, and it's sort of for me, it's kind of contrived. It's kind of like a ver- you're constructing this version, whereas live, you know, it's so immediate, and the exchange with between yourself and the people who like your music or who like music, you know, and like the way you do it, um, it's just this really powerful, um, affirming exchange, and. You know, it can be tough being a musician, it can be tough being an artist, you know, and so often you feel like you're operating in a vacuum and you spend all your time alone in your room. When you perform, you play a gig and then you go backstage. You know, I, you know, I never actually talk to very many people who listen to my records or come to my gigs, you know. So, I don't, so quite often it's very easy to just feel like you're pissing in the wind or yelling into an empty canyon. And those moments where you do actually realise you connect with people, um, like I so say, that's your reward and, like, for instance, just before Christmas I did this tour with my two old bands, with Straightjacket Fits and Dimmer, and um, yeah, it was gr- yeah, it was just really amazing. It was really, uh, there was the really great thing of playing with these people that I'd grown up with, like John Colley, mm. who I went through high school mm. with, you know, the, the Straightjacket's yeah. drummer, and Gary Sullivan, who's drums and Dimmer, uh, you know, I've known Gary for decades, and so these were people who are real important signposts in my life. And, um, you know, we were there playing that music that we all dug and which still sounded good, like, you know, good music will always sound good, you know, and it doesn't matter what era it's from, you know. If, if it's if it's good music, that will resonate in the same way that bad music will be found out by time, you know. But, you know, we thought our music still sounded good, but the really great thing for me was to realise how it connected with people and that um, to people that, it, you know, even on this sort of small scale, that it was really important to those Oh, you know, the songs that moved and they were important to those people who had come to those shows. And um, that was really great because, like I say, uh, so often you just feel like it's very hard to gauge whether you have any impact or whether you touch people at all. And to realise that you do, that was wonderful because usually your feedback to your record is four paragraphs in the Herald. and. Um, It's a lovely answer.
1: What can you see? Like we, we, can, we, we can, I don't know about you because I'm quite blind now, but I can vaguely make out a s- sort of shapes of people in the front row, but I can't see expression. But when you're playing, if there is joy, if, people are, if people's eyes are wide open because you're singing a song that they have loved for 30 years. You know, they bought it when it first came out and every word has meaning to them. Can you see that? Can you tell that that's happening in the...
2: Oh, you can, but, you know, then again, it's not a visual thing, it's almost an energy thing, actually. It's almost this, uh, yeah, it's like this energy that you can actually feel. And it is, it's an exchange between the musician or the performer and the audience, you know. You inspire them, but their energy comes back to you, and that lifts you as well. And that's why, you know, when they say that a gig goes off... Yeah, yeah, yeah. ...that's exactly what happens, you know. It just sort of goes like this, and it keeps escalating, and... All of a sudden you're sort of in this magical space and it's kind of like you're almost sort of the punter in there with it, you know, because that's what I think about music too. Music is this separate entity that sits there in the middle of the room, you know, and it's wobbling away. And as the musician, you're contributing to it, but everyone is focused on that thing that's been created in the middle of the room, yeah. Wobbling's a lovely word you say. You talk about uh, when you're playing in Wayne's—we're going
1: back to Wayne's family garage again—you say, a jam which is the word we, you know, garage Bands use, right? A jam, the word wobbled with the weight of legitimacy. Yeah, right. Well, real bands jam. Yeah, yeah they do. We've never
2: jammed before, so it was going to make us a real band. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I don't really want to talk much about uh, Wayne dying because I think it's too much to ask of you, and I also think that it's so perfectly written that I almost think that people should read it. But there are some things that I want, if you don't mind, that I want to raise with you And It's such a shocking, terrible, awful episode, but there are three moments in it where, as usual, you're very matter-of-fact about it, where there are redemptive acts of kindness. One of them from a highly likely character, Barbara Ward, who drives down from Auckland to Tomoranui to pick you up, and as you say, that's a typically kind act from Barbara, and then drives you back to Hakanoa Street in Grey Lynn but Chris is there to greet you as well. And that's just Barbara all over, Mm. the beautifully kind person that she is. But the the other is, when you say to the conductor, so Wayne's gone, John's hauled you back in, you could have gone. You say to the conductor, we shouldn't have been hanging outside of the train. And he says, we've all been young and stupid. There was a moment, wasn't it, where he, where he just redeemed you on the spot, didn't he? He just,
2: you were forgiven on the spot, weren't you, for being? Oh, you know, it was a lovely piece of comfort that he offered, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it stuck with me for decades afterwards, so yeah, that was always a moment I remember from there, yeah. And then the cop,
1: because, uh, we all know that New Zealand was a tough and unlovely place then, and country cops were not sentimental people, particularly not for punk rock musicians who were smoking dope and doing stupid things on the back of the train. But he said to you, he knew you'd been smoking dope and he was just going to let that go. Yeah. Now, he would have been an arsehole if he'd done anything other than let it go, but there were plenty of cops being arseholes back in the day, right? Yeah,
2: the were heaps of cops being arseholes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah um Look, you know I, don't know, I was kind of thinking about that, you know, um, because, you know, there's aspects of our society that, uh, you know, when I was writing my book, I really did want to, you know, I, I was aware that it was actually an opportunity for, you know, a social commentary, you know, on just the New Zealand that I grew up in. And I think in some places I'm quite harsh on New Zealanders, and but I kind of feel like I have the right to do that because I'm a New Zealander myself and I know, I know the people here, you know. And, um But at the same time, I was thinking, well, you know, I do think New Zealanders are, there's lots of exceptions, you know, you just have to go read the the comments sections on stuff or whatever. But um, I do think New Zealanders have an inherent decency and and actually an inherent kindness. And like I say, there's lots of um, uh, uh, people who contradict that, but I do think that's a quality in us. So when you're talking about those incidents, yeah, that's decent people saying kind things, you know. And uh, yeah, so, and the the things that stay with you and resonate as well, yeah. You then talk
1: about you you and John having this sense, I don't know whether I'm paraphrasing you right here, Shane, but a, a sense of almost obligation or duty, something sacred almost. You say, perhaps John and I thought we had to achieve something on behalf of our friend who was no longer here. The music we eventually made was filled with inspiration and fire, that's so true. I believed I survived the accident because I still had a mission. I'm slightly shortening this bit of writing. Maybe my theory was half right, but these were the motivations behind Straightjacket Fits.
2: Yeah, they were.
1: So, so, so you had a sense of obligation to Wayne and you had a sense of obligation to your shared dreams, I guess, about what you might have done.
2: Yeah, it was just more that what we were discussing before, more realising that there are no scales of justice and also, you know, when you're young and you get hit with that kind of you know, mortality, you know, ro- literally in your face like that, um, it's a big shock. But yeah, I think the main thing we got out of it is that, uh, as I also wrote in the book, you sort of just get this feeling that you've got to do what you want to do while you're around to do it and uh, yeah, that really lit a fire under our asses. you know, we, um, yeah, you know, we, we, we wanted a rock. And to us, that was the best answer to what had just happened, actually, for everything that wanting to rock represents, which is freedom, uh, self-expression, and being true to yourself. And um, you're not selling yourself short and just doing what you're really into and what you're passionate about, yeah.
1: And the magic powers, right, of being above of being above everything. You know the, that stuff you were talking about before? That that somehow the ordinary world, the tough world, the world in which so many people you know have died, for example, is just for an hour or however long you're on the stage, completely
2: left behind, isn't it? That's exactly right, it's a sanctuary, yeah. It's a comfort and it's a solace, it's an escape, and uh, all that stuff. Yeah, look, you know, without being dramatic, I, you know, I've just always known that for me personally, that music was my salvation, really. If I hadn't had that, you know, I, yeah, I probably would have been in big trouble jacket fits. <laughs> don't you believe me?
1: <laughs> Straightjacket jacket were often a great rock and roll band, you say on page 217, and you're right to say it. You were often a great rock and roll band, eh? I think one of the things I was nervous about would be how you'd write about Andrew in here. Because everyone, you know, it's the McCartney-Lennon thing, isn't it? It's two, it's two songwriters. It's so a go-betweens manager, but a lot of bands don't. Actually, you partied with the Gun once, didn't you? And GW McLennan, who is another person who's no longer with us, snogged your flatmate, right? He pished
2: up Ange. He yeah. was outrageous. Yeah.
1: Was yeah. it outrageous? Was it in it? No, no, it wasn't no. outrageous no, no.
2: at all. I was like, get on, Ange.
1: But, but you're, the, there's a lovely sense of your admiration for Andrew as a songwriter in here. You're not a particular admirer of his productivity, of, his, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the speed of his output. But the quality of his output you 're very generous about, and I, 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 had, that, I was kind of nervous about how you 'd handle that, oh, yeah, because yeah, we want I think everyone who loves the fits wants you both to be okay, you know <laughs> or maybe just I'm a corny old wanker, but that uh, <laughs> was good. It was nice to read that. Thanks. Shane.
2: Yeah, oh look, of course Look, look. Um yeah, look, I like Andrew, I haven't seen Andrew for 20 years, but you know, I liked Andrew, and you know, being in, that's just the nature of bands, bands yeah. split up, you know. He was in the band, I don't know, four or five years, and that's quite a long time for a band to yeah, go, actually. Yeah, it is, yeah it is. And um, yeah, it's just like, I always like him being in a band, it's like being in a, you know, in a flat, you know. You move on eventually, and you know you get new flatmates, and um
1: and people invest so much in it, in the way that they don't in a flat. No one's looking at the flat and going, God, aren't they the greatest flatmates of all time? I hope they stay together forever. And, yeah, but in a band, <laughs> 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 but in a band, people want that shit, don't they?
2: <laughs> yeah, oh, of course. You know, and especially if it's something that people like. You know, and they go, Oh, can't they see? You know, how good that was, and all that kind of stuff. But look, so that's just the nature of, of being in bands or flats, and. Um you know, people, uh, people just always made a really big deal about that, you know, the whole Andrew, you know, I still get, you know, you're asking me about Andrew now, and I don't know, he left the band in 1992, and uh, so I've been asked a lot about that, but that's just the nature of the bands, and I've been, I've played with a lot of musicians since, and they've left the flat too, and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just the way it works, and yeah.
1: Uh, uh, moments in the book that stopped me in my tracks, Miranda Harkle being the muse for She Speeds.
2: I'm not going to discuss
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant.
2: Uh, yeah. But you know, one thing, you, just to save you here, John. Uh, well, one thing. Oh, I, was,
1: th- I, I just segwayed off into a world of my own there, Yeah. You're, I was perfectly happy. you to start riffing, <laughs> weren't you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, but you know, when you're talking about Andrew and all that kind of thing, look, despite taking a couple of digs, um, as you do through life um, in the book, I really didn't want to use it as an instrument of revenge. You no, know? It doesn't and feel that way. Yeah, Not I, I, even a little bit. You know, and uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't actually, even though I've got some good barbs in there, I didn't actually want to be mean spirited towards no. people or. Um, uh, and especially with the people who've passed away, you know, I, um, I, 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 it was a real moral conundrum how to deal with that, and how to, and writing about my parents, for instance, mm. you know, but you
1: but you write about beautifully.
2: Yeah, but you yeah. know, I love them, and the, but they yeah. had their weaknesses, and they fucked up along the way, and all that kind of stuff. But um, it, it was kind of important to acknowledge what had happened. But not to take the, their dignity away, because I had no, right, you know, I've got no right to take their dignity. No, you were, I think. you know, that's not mine to take. I no, got um,
1: them pitch perfect, I think.
2: Yeah, so I was really conscious about that. Yeah.
1: Uh, heartbreaking moments. One of the moments for me, which was just shatteringly awful, was when you got done for stealing the camembert, <laughs> and you and you were in court on the day that your old school was there en mass doing a school trip to see how the court works. <laughs> and, Including two of your former teachers, (laughs) Shane Carter, unemployed, step
2: forward. Yeah. (laughs) Shane Carter, unemployed, 21, yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then what happened after that was my lawyer said, which was the weakest thing he could possibly say, he said, oh, yes, my client spends his whole days writing songs. (laughs) I thought, man, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) Yeah. You paid off
1: the fine at $5 a week. There's no money in this
2: business, is there? None. Yeah. So yeah, you got fined $120, yeah. Um, I'd just like to say that I actually write about the owner of the 24-hour dairy. And yeah. Everyone referred to him as the wanker at the 24-hour dairy. I hope he's not here. Um, yeah, and uh, we actually not you know I was guilty of this particular crime, but we actually saw it as this sort of Robin Hood kind of thing because was this objectionable dude. So me and my girlfriend used to go in and, and steal he used to stare at your girlfriend, didn't he? He was quite sleazy towards yeah, he, my girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. So um, we thought, oh no, nah, bugger you, man! We're gonna come and steal. you We're gonna steal your camembert, <laughs> and we're gonna steal your um, yeah expensive meats. And I was I was, I was I was the one who got caught. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um. In, in, in getting what you give, Dimmer, and I, I don't know, I, there's the lyrics, whatever you begin will be there when you finish. And you really believe that, don't you? I mean, that, 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 that's, that's this book, that's, that's, that's your life, that's your behavior, that's your relationship, that's your bands, that's, that's a really important couplet for a really important line for you, isn't it? Is it, or am I just reading too much into that?
2: Oh, no, totally, yeah. Uh yeah, I, yeah, no, that just refers to, the, there's a, yeah, there's a consequence for every action, really, and um, what you're responsible f- f- for, you know, accountability, and uh, it's never going to go away. Yeah, it's it's going to be sitting there in your, yeah, when, you do, when, you, when you do your list at the end, for sure. And look back on in that book. How do you feel about what's sitting there? Um, I think my moment of triumph was actually finishing it. Because it was just, well, it's true. Because it's just that it's, it's kind of like any long-term project where you say, "Okay, I'm going to do this," and you know, when you actually see it through and do it, that to me is actually my victory. You know, and um, yeah, you, you know, as the person who wrote it, I'm aware of the holes in it, and uh, and it's just sort of my natural inclination never to be satisfied with what I do. I, I don't really like any of my records. You know, I can like fragments. Really? Well, I can like bits of them, but. Um, yeah, I always sort of see the bits that I don't like, and, but I think that's what keeps you going to a certain extent as well, because if you thought, okay, I've done it and that's absolutely amazing, what else are you going to do? So, I kind of know that I'm being a bit, sometimes you do have to give yourself credit and sometimes I quite often don't, and you know, especially with my music, and that, it's never good enough, and, but I think a lot of musicians feel that way. And I think a lot of artists and a lot of creative, well, probably humans feel that way. That you always feel have the suspicion that you could have done that task better. So, if my book, um, yeah, look, I look at it and get annoyed, you know, with the bits where oh, I've got one syllable too many, and uh, you know, where I've used the same word, you know, within five pages of each other. And to me, that ruins the book. But um, I also know that there's some stuff in there that I'm really proud of too. And um, uh, there were moments through the book where you have that beautiful moment of creativity just where you know you've nailed it, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, it's this... Uh, you expect these streamers to start coming down and everyone to start going around, and, thank you very much for your very good work, thank you very much, thank you very, very, very much. And, um, but yeah, so it's this kind of sad guy, lonely triumph, but it is a triumph nevertheless, yeah, so... Yeah, I had moments with that with, as I do with music, yeah. We're we, we're we're way out of time. We're overtime.
1: But when you but uh, Randolph is a, is a song that you are unabashed about saying maybe the best song you've ever written, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, y- everyone talks about you, you. You're a big fan of dialing, aren't you? As opposed to speeds. You, yeah. You
2: you are. John, it's so rock and roll here. You say dialing and speeds. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Well, you're a mate. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, well, I don't think there'd be anyone here tonight who doesn't know your cat yeah, right. pretty well.
2: Yeah, no, I do rate Dialing as Prayer over She Speeds, I do, yeah. It's, um, uh, I always like the thing with She Speeds was that I always sort of thought it was, as I write on the book too, is was that kind of Fox News thing where they keep hammering and saying She Speeds is better than Dialing a Prayer. And, uh, yeah, and it sort of became popular opinion or it became set in stone as a fact, but I, I actually re- preferred the other tune, yeah. Di-
1: Dialing Us more of us, I think. It's a tougher, harder song, isn't it? Yeah. It, whereas She Speeds is just is
2: beautiful. Cheers, man, yeah. Yeah, oh, no, sh- uh, yeah, no Dialing a Prayer is a tank, mate. Yeah, it is, yeah. it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah, and it is. it's just this unstoppable yeah, thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And that's one of the best songs I've written too,
1: yeah. There's two things I want to say before we go, because... Uh, uh, you talk about what you think when you play, and you say, I get bored of talking about Flying Nun, and you say, I don't want to speak on behalf of Flying Nun, and besides, everyone already has, and it's available, and just go to the wiki page or whatever. I can't tell you what any of the other musicians were thinking, but I can tell you what I was thinking was, fuck you. I still think fuck you when I play, but only if it's good. And what you're thinking is, fuck you, I'm the man. (laughs) I'm the fucking man. You're thinking that, aren't you?
2: No, I'm not thinking I'm the man. I'm just like, oh, fuck you. And uh, that's pretty much what I think. But, like I explain in the book, it's, it's nothing personal, folks. It's just kind of like the universal you. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of like I was saying, you know, about writing those some sort of quite um, naked passages. Yeah, it's just this thing where you just shove it on their face, you know. And I think, uh, especially with New Zealanders, because we're so kind of, you know, our, our official bearing is to sort of be retiring and sort of modest and, Unaf- you know, afraid to do that, and you know, not to stick your head up and all that kind of thing, and, and also this politeness, and um, uh, you know, not that there's anything wrong with politeness, but uh, not wanting to cause offence, you know. And oh man, just it's so liberating just to go and stick your oar in big time. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so yeah, I love doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, I, I,
1: uh, uh, people want to go and buy your book and have you uh, sign your book. Uh, at the end, you're talking about being an Aramoana and the history of Aramoana, which we all know, and then you decide that you can set the history aside. In fact, I think someone advises you to set that you can do that, don't they? Don't you? And so you talk about going the other way to somewhere else that offers you more light. Yeah. And, and I feel like that book, this book. leads you towards the light. I I really feel, I don't know whether this, whether I'm putting words in your mouth, but it starts so darkly. and, And somehow you become this figure who manages to rise above it and triumph over it against the odds as so many people you know haven't done and it's a remarkable form of generosity for you to share that with us, Shane.
2: Oh, cheers, joy. And, yeah. And,
1: and, and, and to share it in a way that is so good. Steve Bourneas is right, this is, uh, writing about a New Zealand childhood, this, it's up there with frame in terms of being that vivid and that evocative and that raw and that honest. It's, it's so, I can't, it's a beautiful book.
2: Oh, cheers, thanks very much. Well, wow. um, yeah. Uh well, don't worry, I'll discover some new darkness next week. Good. <laughs> Good. Don't worry, everybody.
1: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Shane Carter. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.